Episode 333, Halfway to Hell. Or maybe not. Our numbering system is a bit out of whack again, because technically last week's episode from the can was 333 according to my files. Well, this is less than ideal. This is what, the, the third or fourth time we've managed to lose track of the numbering of our episodes? Yes, although I like to think that's because we've had to cover up the fact that certain episodes have been removed from the feed due to their salacious content. Mm, like the what the conspiracy episode on Bach's Forbidden Chord. Or the miniseries we did exposing that not only was David Icke right, but Alex Jones is actually Dennis Leary in a bodysuit. Mm, plus there was the one on what the conspiracy where you told me about... Uh, it was a really recent one. It was about... You can't get me with that ploy. This week's episode will remain a mystery right up until I pull the mask off your face and push you into the abyss of the mystery of... Of? Your mum. Are we really resurrecting the your mum shtick? No. Let this be the end of the your mum gags. <laughs> Doesn't she just? You know what we haven't said in a while? Penis? Well, that's that spent as well. Yeah, <laughs> just like your mum. My mother? No, your mother. My mother is a saint. In bed. You know, this is precisely why I have imposter syndrome around being an associate professor. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Addison in Auckland, New Zealand. They are Dr. M. Dentith in Shuhai, China. Um, one of us is still locked down, the other one isn't. And neither of us know which is which, so frankly it's, it's, it's a bit of a mystery. Are you locked down? Am I locked out? Nobody knows. Well, I mean, we're both sitting in rooms, but no, I'm still locked down, but it's a, it's the lockdowns have been relaxed, which basically just means we can get takeaways and go down, walk down to a cafe and get a coffee. Uh, but other than that, we're all still at home. Have you done either of these two things? My, my wife has gone and got herself a coffee and came back with pies, actual bakery pies. And yes, we did have takeaways for lunch today. Got some burgers. Now... Non-New Zealand residents or listeners oh, yes, who yes, may, yes. maybe both won't be aware of just how important the pie is in the culture of our home country. The pie is kind of the ultimate culinary dish for someone who hasn't mm. had it for ages, to the point where I am craving pie. I've been out of the mm. country since the middle of June, and what I really want is a pie or a sausage roll. In fact, my body needs it. If I don't have one soon, I think I'm going to die. Yes, and to, to our American listeners, uh, in New Zealand, a pie is a meat pie or a savoury pie, whereas I believe over there, pie is usually a fruit, a sweet pie, unless, unless you say otherwise. So yes, th these, were, these were steak and cheese pies we got. Unless it's, unless it's a pizza, because of course, in some parts of the US, a pie is, is, is a pizza pie. It's very confusing. I mean, frankly, the Americans are abusing language all the time, and frankly, they should stop. Mm. What are you going to do? Now, enough, enough, enough talk of pies. I'll, I'll just let you sit there and reminisce for a couple more seconds, and then we should move on because um, it is a what the conspiracy episode. And yes, I, I had, I was all ready to say, ha ha, it's episode three three three. It's 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 the number of half the beast, forgetting, of course, that we had a, a filler episode in between 
that our last one from the can. So so technically this isn't episode 333. It just was by my count, but my count is wrong. Anyway, what it is, is a What the Conspiracy episode. And we still didn't quite sort out which one of us is in the hot seat because I sort of, I think of it like Mastermind where you have you have like the person in the seat and then there's like the host grilling them. And so you're the host, which would mean I'm in the seat. But on the other hand, the, the person in the seat is being asked questions. And, and so I will be asking questions, which kind of means you're in the seat. So I think this actually means that the metaphor doesn't work at all. And I should stop talking about who's in the, in the hot seat uh, altogether. Or we make it into a Black Adder, the second reference, where, you know, at home, Nathaniel sits on a spike. I sit on Nathaniel. Two spikes would be luxury. It'd be an extravagance. That's yes, also anyway. true. Mm. But the point is, uh, I don't know what's about to happen next. I have no notes, so I'm just going to sit here in my chair um, and, and let him regale me with tales of who knows what, quite frankly. Well, indeed, and there's a twist in the tale this week, but we'll get to that after this sting. It's time to play What the Conspiracy. Okay, Joshua, Mm -hmm. it's the usual preamble that we have to what the conspiracy. I need a where, a when, and a what statement from you. So let's start with where. Where do you think this tale of conspiracy takes place? Well, I mean, you've you've had a few sort of Shakespearean kind of kind of kind of old Englishy ones, so I figure you're probably going to stick in the same thing. So I'm going to say I'm going to say the British Isles. Okay, so the UK will lock that in. Right, when mm-hmm. when is this going to occur, or when did well, this occur? When did well? Uh, did you just give something away? Is it a is it a conspiracy about the future? No, I'm going to assume I'm going to go about let's say let's say about two hundred and. 50 years ago so that's interesting that's very very interesting something 17 like you go, I could go 250 years ago i mean there's no way to work out how there's no way to work out exactly what year that would have been no, no. it's precisely nobody knows all right and what mm. kind of conspiracy is it well i mean i've been wrong about all of the dairy-based ones uh and then i finally remembered it's because you're vegan you're not going to do dairy-based dairy-based uh, conspiracy theories at all. So I assume this is going to be something about quinoa. Interesting. I mean, actually, mm. if you'd gone with dairy-based, you would have been as close as you could possibly get to a dairy-based conspiracy this time round. So frankly, I'm actually shocked that you didn't get this one. So mm. you're wrong on all counts. Obviously. The where, you're not even in the right hemisphere. Mm-hmm. The when, well, I mean, we don't actually know when 250 years ago actually was, but it was it's, it's, it's basically last century rather than two and a half centuries ago. And the what, well, it's a New Zealand-based conspiracy, so dairy has to come into it in some way, shape, or form, although actually only just because of the proximity to milk products. So the where is our home nation of Aotearoa, New Zealand. The when... Mm is around about 1984, 1985, Mm. and the what is a political conspiracy theory about the Soviet infiltration of the Labour Party and the anti-nuclear treaty. Okay, I mean, I haven't heard of this. Well, except that you have. Because I've brought this up several times for an episode that we should do. 
and now I'm now doing it as, as what as what the conspiracy rather than doing it as a mainline episode. Right. Yes, I was going to. I haven't heard of this specifically, um, but it, it doesn't surprise me in any way that there would have been such conspiracy theories. So hit me, hit me with the details. How's it all go down? All right. So preamble. Joshua, were you aware that the anti-nuclear policies of 1980s New Zealand were the product of a concerted concerted Soviet conspiracy going all the way back to the 1970s? I did not know that, no. All right. Now, before we move on to exactly why that was the case or why it's alleged to be the case, Josh, I mean, you're, you're someone who's very politically literate and know a lot about the history of your home country. Could you give the listeners... The official history of anti-nuclear policies in Aotearoa, New, Ze- New Zealand. So what what happened to make us go nuclear-free? Um, David Longy had that funny line about smelling plutonium on a guy's breath, and I'm pretty sure that was it. Mm, you want to expand on that in some way, shape, or form? Do you, first of all, do you know who he was talking to? No, he was... Uh, or, yes. So for, for our listeners who aren't aware... New Zealand has an anti-nuclear policy that much is is not up to debate, um, and it came about because it wasn't that we wouldn't let nuclear-powered ships into New Zealand. It was that America wouldn't say whether or not their ships or submarines or whatever wouldn't wouldn't would neither confirm nor deny whether they were nuclear-powered, and that we said, well, okay, in that case, you're not allowed to come here at all. And there was some of that. The only the only sort of cultural touchstone that anyone like me remembers is that at one point there was a debate between the then Prime Minister David Longy. Was he the Prime Minister then, or was he just the? He was, yes, yes, he was. He was, he was actual Prime Minister, yeah. Um, and and some American guy who I, I assume you're going to tell me the identity. Jerry Falwell. Was it Jerry Falwell? Yes. Oh, crap! I didn't even know that. Um, and yeah, at one point they David Longy, who was known for being a bit of a a bit of a wit, um, ad-libbed at the one point where when Falwell was close to him saying something about about nuclear power and David Longy quipped, yes, I know, I can smell the plutonium on your breath. And everyone thought that was most hilarious and it uh, contributed to the, the total downfall of um, international relations, as far as I'm aware. Well, yes, it did actually... Well, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't that speech that led to the downfall of international relations, but the anti-nuclear policy that was decided by the fourth Labour government really did cause a lot of issues internationally. But we'll get on to that in just a minute. So a potted history of New Zealand's nuclear or anti-nuclear policies. There's always been a bit of official opposition towards nuclear weapons in the Pacific. So famously, former Labour Prime Minister Norm Kirk sent naval vessels to Muroa Atoll. He was a prime minister well before David Longy to signify displeasure of French nuclear weapon tests in the Pacific, which is one of those weird things to think that within our living memory, the French were using islands in the Pacific to just randomly test bombs. Because, well, let's see where this bomb works. So we'll just send it as far away from the Republic of France as possible. We'll put it below the waterline on an island, and then we'll blow the bomb up to see whether it worked. Oh, it did work. Well, now we know that bomb in our arsenal was functional. It's also now no longer useful because it's blown up. We'd better test another bomb just to make sure it worked. And for a long period of time, the Republic of France was just blowing up bombs in the Pacific. 
And Australia and New Zealand, particularly New Zealand, really didn't like the idea that another sovereign, uh, a sovereign nation from the Northern Hemisphere felt that it would just be appropriate to blow things up in the Pacific. So there were official protests lodged at embassies and consulates, so please stop doing this. And eventually Norm Kirk went, actually, this is just inappropriate. I'm going to send our vessels to the edge of Muroa at, at all, because there's no way the French are going to test a weapon if there are members of another sovereign nation close by. And lo and behold, that, that basically led to the French going, we will restrict the tests and we will do them more safely, but they still kept doing them for quite some time. There's also a side story here about what's going on with the Rainbow Warrior and mm. things. We won't go we've in, talked in, into that. that. Well, precisely. But from the perspective of what happened in 1984 when the fourth Labour government was elected, was, as you pointed out, the issue of US warships. So the US would have ships in the Pacific, some of which were nuclear-powered, some of which were nuclear capable, which is to say they may or may not have contained nuclear weapons on board. And people weren't particularly happy with the idea of nuclear material or fissile material coming into harbours in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So whenever a US warship basically came into a harbour, there'd be a flotilla of protesters around it and protests in the streets. Rob Muldoon, the Prime Minister before Prime Minister David Lange, would actually use nuclear ship visits from the US as a way to kind of bolster support because Muldoon and Rob's mob were very much for keeping the status quo, so protesters were really, really good for Rob Muldoon's popularity. Whenever there were protests, it made him more popular amongst a certain class of conservative individual back home. But there was obviously growing opposition to the idea of allowing these ships into our waters. So actually, so Josh, do you remember the announcement of the snap election that led to the arrival of the fourth Labour government? At the time, no, no. I mean, I was, was it 84? Was it before that? Was it 83? Well, yeah, you know, no, no. they were elected in 84 at the end of the year. It was a snap election. So it was a, it was very much a few weeks before the election. Yeah, so 1984, I was eight years old, so I wasn't really paying much attention to it, but it's, it's, it is uh, an important enough event that most um, New Zealanders have, have at least heard of it. Um, there was, this was the one that uh, Robert Muldoon infamously called, uh, announced that he was calling a snap election while visibly drunk on national television with the line about uh, the reporter said that doesn't give you a lot of time to prepare and and, and he sort of slurred back, oh, it doesn't give my opponents much time to prepare either. But yes, I, I, I know of it, but at the time I was not aware. So I have a distinct memory of watching Muldoon make that announcement on TV. I was at my grandparents' place at the time and my grandmother saying he's obviously drunk. And yet, like many of those memories that we are certain that we recall directly from childhood, I am increasingly suspicious that I only remember that because I've been told I was at my grandmother's house when the snap election was called, because my mother recalls that event. And because I was there, she said, well, you'll remember, you were there at the time, your grandmother said. 
he's obviously drunk. Well, of course I remember that now, but possibly only because I've been told I remember it rather than actually remembering it myself. That's just a, a side issue on the weirdness of memory here. Although the weirdness of memory is going to be important for this particular story. Now, Josh is also correct. What happened in 1984 was that the Labour government said, look, we don't want nuclear ships coming into our ports. We are now a nuclear-free nation. So if you are a warship and you want to dock in one of our harbours, you just have to announce in advance whether you're nuclear-capable or not nuclear-capable. If you're nuclear-capable, you can't come in. If you're not nuclear-capable, you are allowed to berth in one of our harbours. And the issue was the US was not willing to make any such declaration as to the status of their ships. They said, nope, we want either to be able to dock all military vessels in your berths, or we are not going to visit at all. The New Zealand government went, we just, you know, our rule is if you're nuclear capable, you can't come in. So just announced in advance, the US said, nope. We're not willing to make such a concession. They argued it was from a security perspective that if enemies became aware of which ships were allowed to dock in, say, the Waitemata, then they would be able to work out which ships are nuclear-powered or have a nuclear arsenal on board, and thus they would end up being targets in some kind of attack. So the US was going, no, we're just not willing to give that kind of security information away to our enemies. And because of that, the Australia-New Zealand-US Security Alliance, known as ANZUS, was basically disestablished, or at least New Zealand was suspended from the alliance because there was no longer full cooperation between the three powers in the Pacific. Famously, National, the opposition party, said that they were going to rescind the anti-nuclear policy that was brought about in 1984, but never did, because it turns out that even though this led to opprobrium overseas by our traditional allies, the US and Australia, it has incredible popular support back home. And so National for years said, we're going to get rid of it, and then never did. And now they've committed to keeping the policy because it's taken to be part of our national character. But there are certain people on the hard right of the political spectrum back home who are against the anti-nuclear policy and suspicious as to why we generated it in the first place. And so what we're going to look at here is an article by an Australian freelance journalist called Bernard Moran and a New Zealand, and I'm going to use the word here generously, conspiracy theorist by the name of Trevor Loudon that provides three prongs of evidence that shows that the reason why we went anti-nuke in 1984-1985, the policy didn't uh, was talked about in 84 it came into effect in 85 was due to the soviets and not due to popular demand mm. well i do like a good prong so three of them is is, is music to my ears what uh, what's the what's the first avenue of attack here then in this conspiracy theory the first prong is tony neri 
I, I don't know who that is. Most people won't. So Tony Neri was a one-time leader of the Electrical Workers Union, which was one of the bigger unions back in the 60s and 70s back home. Now, he claimed at a conference, I believe sometime in the 90s, held in Washington, D.C., organized by Owen Harries, a former prominent Australian politician and ambassador for the Hoover Institute. Oh, sorry, the actually conference was in 1987, is in my notes. Uh, so Neri's a former union leader claimed that the Soviet Union, through one of its fronts, the World Federation of Trade Unions, had successfully infiltrated the New Zealand trade union movement and changed its direction. Now, the evidence he put forward at this conference in 1987 is this. In the good old days, the unions used to be incredibly friendly towards US trade unions, but when... Jim Knox became the president of the Federation of Labour, which is now known as the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions, or the NZCTU. This changed, and there was much more friendliness towards the Soviet bloc than there was to our good old friends in the US of A. Now, we'll talk more about, about Jim Knox later on. So Neri's going, look, in the old days, we used to be really friendly with US Labour organisers. And then suddenly, we start to become really friendly with Soviet Union organizers. That seems ever so slightly suspicious. He also claimed that the SUP, the Socialist Unity Party, which, and this is a fun fact of New Zealand history, the SUP was one of the last parties to believe that Stalin was right. So New Zealand has the dubious distinction of having a socialist party that up until the mid-80s was convinced that Stalin was not as bad as his critics had made him out to be. So even when Russia was going, we think that maybe Stalin wasn't a particularly stand-up guy. New Zealanders who belonged to the SUP would go, no, 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 no. You can't say a bad thing about Stalin. I mean, it's Stalin. You can't say a bad thing about St- about st- about him. He was great. Did have an impressive mustache. It's true. Do you know who who also had an impressive mustache? Mario from Super Mario Brothers. Yes. Mm. Well, there you have it. I, I rest well, my precisely. case. Uh, so he claims that the SUP was. In, had considerable control over the union movement and the SUP being Stalin-affiliated meant that obviously that was a front for Russia at that particular time. And indeed, the authors, Moran and Loudon, relate a story which doesn't actually come from Neri, this is just part of the official record, that in the early 80s there was a, a do at the Russian embassy where the World Federation of Trade Union's president, Jim Knox, was in attendance, and Jim Knox gave the Russian delegates sheepskin rugs as a gift, and the American delegate of the union movement who was there at the same time was simply given a simple cheese board. And the authors go, look, well, this just shows you know just how much privilege the russians are getting here they get a, they get sheepskin rugs and the american delegate only gets a cheese board that's 
that's ever so slightly, slightly suspicious. And they also relate, as Neri relates, that there was during the 60s, 70s, and even early 80s, there was a lot of cases of the union movement sending people to Russia to go on leadership training courses. And indeed, no one disputes that. There were MPs right up until the present day who have admitted that they they went to Russia on such leadership training courses. It was kind of what you did in the U- union movement at the time. Yeah, I mean that that doesn't surprise me particularly. I mean, so if 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 you're a member of a, a socialist or socialist leaning sort of lefty political party, then then it doesn't seem surprising at all that they would be more friendly with the Russians than the Americans past a certain point. But I assume this is this this is the, just the start of it, and they're going to be building upon that um, idea to say they took it further than we thought. So are you saying the first prong hasn't convinced you of a Soviet conspiracy to change national policy in Aotearoa? Are you wanting more evidence? I, I was promised two more prongs, and I will reserve judgment until I've had them. Fine, I'll give you a second prong then. <laughs> Prepare to be pronged. All right, the second prong is Oleg Gordeski. So Gordeski was a ranking officer of the KGB who also turned out to be an undercover agent working for MI6. Actually, his story is kind of amazing. So he was stationed in London ostensibly working for the KGB, but had been turned by MI6 fairly early on. So MI6 would simply feed him information they were happy for the Soviets to find out about, or he would then feed to MI6 information the Soviets didn't want anyone to know about. He got recalled back to Moscow. Everyone was convinced that he had been discovered. MI6 said, look, you should just defect, don't go back. But he went, no, I should go back. I've got, I've got family there. Indeed, he had been discovered. He was tortured. He was put into a kind of a fictional office to work there as they engaged in investigation. And there was an a, a elaborate exfiltration plan developed to get him out of the out of Russia into the UK. And he's still alive today, living in secret somewhere near Cambridge. And it turns out. You know those really awkward poisonings that occurred a few years ago? Very close to where he lived. Very close to where he lived. Suspicious. Suspicious is what I was saying. Yes, yes. So, I mean, officially there was an execution order put on him by the Soviet. Technically, the Soviets aren't in charge of Russia anymore, but also technically... That execution order has never been rescinded. Mm. So it's quite weird. Anyway, he wrote a whole bunch of briefing papers after he defected to the the UK. And in those briefing papers, he claimed that the anti-nuclear policies of the 1984 Labour government pleased the KGB at the time, and this led to more socialists in the unions and the Labour Party as a consequence. Right. Well, I mean, again, that's, that's, that's not super surprising. If, if, if the Labour movements here were more chummy with the Russians, then the Russians would be happy about that. Um, 
but yes, I guess it is interesting to see that, that that no less than the KGB were taking an interest in the in the friendliness of it, if 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 the source is above the level. But I assume you've 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 yet another prong to stick me with, which will tie all this together and and actually. Sorry, are you are you saying the two the two prongs I've given you are not sufficient to make you believe there was a Soviet conspiracy to change the policy of Aotearoa New Zealand? Well, you haven't really brought up a, a conspiracy as such yet. You've just said that we were friendly with the Russians and the Russians appreciated that. But I assume next is going to be something along the lines of, and so they decided to do something about it. Actually, before we get there, let's play a let's play a let's play a quick game. Okay. So, Oleg had code names both with MI6 and the CIA. Now, I want to point out the CIA did not know his identity, and indeed, it's suspected that the CIA trying to find his identity was the reason why Moscow found out about him being a double agent. But I want to know. Can you guess what his MI6 and CIA code names were? Um, so the MI6, what what kind of code name do you think MI6 would have given to a double agent? Oh, something something like Spotty's Wood or, or Whiffling Badger or Chubbington Lee Smith. So his MI6 code name was Nocton. N O C T O N. Right, not. Not knocked on as a door might be. No, no, just knocked on. Okay. What what kind of code name do you think the CIA gave the mysterious double agent that the UK had in in the KGB? Oh, it'll be it'll be one of the one of the weird code names like they give their operations like striking freedom or 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 operation was was Jade Helm. Yep. So, yep. Operation. Operation Mighty Genitals. I'm not Mighty Genitals. That's my that's my pick for his CIA name. Well, I mean, you're pretty close. His CIA code name was Tickle. Right. I mean, it's it's on it's it's on the way. I suppose it's yeah uh, pre- yeah precisely. Um, I just think it's interesting. The CIA went right. We need to come up with a code name for someone whose identity we don't know. Uh, you know, he's, he seems like a fairly senior KGB officer working for the British. We need a name that has, that, you know, shows that person the right degree of respect in the CIA. His codename will be Tickle. Mm. I mean, that does it. Now, now that I think of the few spy type thrillers I've seen, it usually is a, just a, a fairly simple, innocuous word, isn't it? It's it's those those wacky military guys with their operations blowing up countries that give it the grand bombastic name. So yes, I was completely on the wrong track. All right, but all right. So you want you oh, want sorry. a third prong? Does David Ferrier know about this? No, no, um, no. I actually should tell him about the real yeah. Tickle King. Yeah, yeah. I think you should. All right, prong the third. Mm-hmm. So. As you've kind of intimated, the first two bits of evidential prongness really seems like prologue to the story that's meant to tell us about the actual conspiracy. So prong the third is about a Dutch immigrant to New Zealand called John van der Ven, who the authors claim resembled the mythical tugboat captain. Now, Josh, when you hear the words mythical tugboat captain, what what image comes to mind? I'm I'm assuming a sort of Captain Pugwash or or Captain um, what's his face from the Tintin books. 
Some dude oh, with a beard. Captain Haddock. Captain Haddock, yes. So, I mean, Something but if you were going to give him you know, a, a, a physical description, what, what, what oh, kind of build know. do you think the mythical tugboat captain has? Well, I mean, a stocky build and a big beard and probably a, probably a big sort of a sou'wester, big waterproof clothes that he wears at all times. All right. Well, so, I mean, they, they say that he was a stocky, powerfully built man filled with restless energy and, relatedly or unrelatedly, he chain-smoked thin cigars. So you're, you're quite mm. close. I mean, when I read the terms mythical tug- tugboat captain, all I could think of was Captain Pugwash. Mm. Yeah, I was never, never, never much got into the old Captain Pugwash. So I don't have a particularly strong, strong memories of him or what he looked like, but it's, it's more Captain Haddock, even though I couldn't remember his name, is the, uh, is the, is the, uh, the, the association I make. All I'm going to say to that is blistering barnacles. Mm-hmm. Now, Van de Ven worked as a, tank, a tanker driver for Mobile, and he got into trouble with his union, this is back in the 60s or 70s, for driving too fast. So basically, he was moving oil or petro- petroleum around the country. He was getting goods from one depot to another too quickly, which was embarrassing to other union members. So the union told him off and said, look, you need to obey the rules. You need to drive at the set speed that the union says you should rather than being more efficient as you're trying to be. So he decided to get his revenge. He pretended from that point onwards, after being chastised for the union for breaking the rules, to be sorry and acted like a loyal member of the union, even going so far to hand out SUP leaflets. Now, after a year of this pretense, he was told he had a future in the union. And this is around about the time that he actually found a legitimate grievance at work. He discovered there was a tyre safety issue on the tankers that he and the other drivers were driving, which led to a prolonged strike. So he was both being a loyal member of the union and had just managed to get the union into legitimate strike activity. So at this point, he joined the SUP, and, and I quote directly from their quoting of him, studied Marxist-Leninist theory under a secret member who was later appointed to senior positions in business. He also ran as the SUP ca- candidate in one of the electorates for the general election of 1981, which is the election before the Labour Party came in, into power. Now, actually, I was only four at the time, of the 1981 election. But Josh, you're a lot older than me, so you must remember the 1981 election. Tell the listeners about what happened back in 1981. I'm a year and a half older than you, so I was only about five. So um, I'm afraid I have no memory of it whatsoever. Uh, I think you're suppressing something there. I think 1981 must have been must have been a terrible time for you. You just don't want to talk about your memories of being on the campaign tra- tra- trail. Yeah, oh, maybe I've suppressed a lot. Who could say? Now, around about this time, he claims he was he he contacted the NZSAS, our intelligence agency, and told them about the fact that. He was, infor- he was trying to infiltrate the unions and the concern that there were Reds 
under the bed. He was told by NZSIS to keep in place and he was given a retainer. So he was given some money to keep on the case and also a handler. He was also given a code name. What kind of code name do you think the NZSIS would give to an agent they had in place infiltrating Soviet conspiracies? Well, I mean, if, if, if I'm picking up a theme so far, it's two-syllable words and fairly innocuous ones at that, so I'm going to go with Neville. Joe Martin. Yeah, it's not, not too far away. It's also very boring. I mean, boring. it's nothing like it, but it's, it, it's, it's a boring name, so yeah. Yeah, to my mind, victory. that's the kind of code name that you would you would quite quickly forget. And so so what, what's your code name? Oh, uh, it's uh, Joe something. Uh, Joe Market. Joe Martinet, Joe Marricate, Joe Mama. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I should have. I should have done. One day we'll we'll have to get the thing so both of either of us can do that, and I'll be there with my finger on the finger on the button. But it doesn't matter anyway. He yeah, had a, he anyway. had a boring he had a boring code name. A very boring code name of Joe of of, mm. of Joe Martin. Now, between the 29th of October 1983 through to February the 12th of 1984, he was sent to Moscow to train at the Lenin Institute for Higher Learning in Prospect Leningradsky. And according to him, and here's here's a damning quote. Peace was higher on the agenda. As one tutor told us, we have many clever people in the Soviet Union, but no one has ever been able to come up with a weapon potentially as powerful as the peace movement. Not the peace movement. I know. I mean, what what a what a terrible thing to suggest that you know peace might be the might be the answer. I'm only alive because of the peace movement. That's how my grandparents met in World War II. So there you go. So you're saying the peace movement leads to rampant sex and the production of children. I'm now of the opinion that maybe the peace movement is a bad idea after all. Yeah, who can say? Well, precisely. I mean, I hope you and Anna aren't engaging in any peaceful activities. Uh, well, I mean, it's in lockdown. It does tend to, does tend to kind of promote a fair amount of peacefulness and... Um, idleness at any rate so i can I make you promises. filthy filthy man yeah. just peacefully being in bed with with your partner every night i mean frankly yeah. this is disgusting this is absolutely yeah. disgusting i don't want to hear about your 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 peaceful relations anymore anyway uh, van der Veen was told at the course he was on the course had been condensed because yuri and Andropov, who was leader of the Soviet Union at the time, had initiated a strategy for taking a social democratic country out of the Western alliance by utilizing the correlation of forces provided by the peace movement. And New Zealand was apparently the target because we were small enough to test the idea on. Mm, I think that needs a dun-dun-dun, quite frankly. Okay. It feels more proper. Okay, so so this Mr. What was his name? Van der Ven. John Van der Ven is uh, is reporting back that he went off to Moscow and 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 the Russians had these plans. What? So so, so how did things go from there then? How? So obviously we did end up backing out of Anzus and all of that. So if 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 we're to believe the story, their plan worked. How did how did it work? Well, actually, you you know, I said there were three prongs. Hmm. I lied. There's a fourth prong. 
a bonus prong. It's like all my Christmases have come at once. And you know who that bonus prong belongs to? Is it David Longy? No, it's Dr. Michael Bassett. I know the name. Josh? Well, I would say, so Josh, who is Dr. Michael Bassett? I was, I was going to say, I know the name, but I cannot at the moment uh, summon from the recesses of my memory who exactly Michael Bassett was. He was a minister in the 1984 Labour government. Right. And and relatedly, he was one of the right-wing members of the 1984 Labour government. So one of the things which often gets brought up when people talk about the fourth Labour government in Aotearoa, New Zealand, was that the Labour Party at the time was kind of stricken between a left-wing and a right-wing. And certain policy initiatives that came through from that government ended up going left, such as the anti-nuclear policy, and certain other policies that the Labour government became really famous for, like the neoliberal reforms, were very much of the right wing. And Bassett famously has gone on the record repeatedly, because Bassett is also an historian, talking about the fact that David Longy listened to the left-wing part of the party more than he listened to the right-wing part of the party. Bassett tries to make out that this made Longy incredibly weak as a political figure because he wouldn't stick with one side over the other. That might be true, but Bassett's reasoning is basically sour grapes because Bassett didn't get everything he wanted. In fact, he didn't get everything he wanted to his mind makes Longy weak, as opposed to, well, maybe you just didn't argue your case particularly well. But Bassett enters the story, and basically we get a potted history of what happened in the first few years of the 1984 Labour government. So Bassett talks about the fact that Longy wasn't much of a leader and the party was driven by the left and right-wing factions at the time. And Bassett basically argues, look, Longy was listening to the wrong part of the party. He was listening to the unionists in the party. The unions, as the authors have intimated, had been infiltrated by the SUP so when Longy was listening to the Unionists, he was actually listening to Soviet Russia. Ipso facto, the authors intimate, that must mean that Longy was listening to Andropov, and thus the anti-nuclear policy was in fact the responsibility of the Soviets through their chief cheerleader in the Labour Party at the time. Can you guess who that chief cheerleader of the Soviets was back in 1984. Oh, was it Helen Clark? You are correct. It was indeed <laughs> Helen Clark, there according to Michael Bassett. Because if there's one thing mm -hmm. that Michael Bassett, so one one person who Michael Bassett hates even more than David Longy, it's Helen Clark. Yes, famously uh, uh, former Prime Minister of New Zealand. Now she's still at the UN. She had sort of the number three. No, she's job at the retired UN now, I believe. She? Yeah. yeah okay. No, I, I, yep. she's back. She's back in the country. She's retired and trying to make sure that no one ever makes a loud noise near Eden Park. Mm. Good, quite frankly. But that's not Well, precisely. Mm. 
So yes, so there we have the story. According to Loudon and Moran, our anti-nuclear policy was orchestrated by the Soviets, and the proof is how the socialists swamped the unions and altered the Labour Party after 1984. Right. I mean, it's... Convinced? Well... It's a bit light, really. I mean, there's not there's not what you'd call a smoking gun or anything. It's just um, there were unionists. The unionists were taking orders from Russia. The suggestion that the unionists were influencing David Longy, and then a thing happened, which I guess the Russians would have been happy about. So I mean, you can you can draw inferences, but I don't think there's any any sort of proof positive that the um, the genesis of the anti nuclear policy came came from uh, Moscow. So, so you're saying you, you basically just aren't convinced by the, the four prongs of evidence here? No, no. I, I have a feeling it would take a good, a good five, maybe even six prongs for me to really get on board with this conspiracy theory. So far, it just seems a little, little heavier on the innuendo than any actual evidence. All right, well, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit more about the prongs. So there isn't much information out there about Tony Neri, our first prom. One thing which is interesting, he was accused back in the day of seeing reds under the bed. So he basically got on the wrong side of a lot of union members, including Jim Knox, for the sheer fact that he was suspecting communist conspiracies from the very beginning. He was a big fan of Joe McCarthy and was really concerned that New Zealand was being infiltrated by Soviet spies like the US allegedly was. And of course, we all know how that went down. And what's amusing is that, so Neri is dead and his obituary is available online and even his obituary mentions he was notorious for claiming there were reds under the bed. So... Famously, probably not the best source of information about communist conspiracies, given that this was someone who saw communist conspiracies everywhere, whether they were occurring or not. Okay. Uh, what about what about number two then? What was his name? Oleg? Well, no, no, no. So the other thing I want to know, so I said no. we'd go back to, to G- Jim Knox, who was Tony Neri's opponent. Oh, the okay. story that Moran and Loudon tell misses out a really interesting factoid, which Mm -hmm. was Jim Knox and Tony Neri were in competition to become the president of the North Island Electrical Trades Union, and Knox decisively defeated Neri in that election. So it's quite possible that Neri in his story about how Knox was basically cozying up to the Ruskies back in the day is basically part of his vendetta of, you bet me in that election, but I'm going to try and win the PR war with time. Right. Well, I'm, I'm certainly not seeing any great uh, amount of objectivity then from Mr. Neri here. Now, you want to know about about the next... So the, next, the, the, the second prong was our Russian defector. Mm-hmm. It's probably important to note the Russian defector's evidence in no way actually says anything about a Soviet conspiracy to alter the the policy of the fourth Labour government. All he says is the KGB liked the fact that we took an anti-nuclear stance. 
that's that's not evidence of we influenced that particular change. No. Simply, well, that kind of benefited Russia from a international relations perspective. So the KGB liked it. Mm, yes, exactly. It's not again. It's it's heavy on the innuendo, not not so much on the actual direct evidence. There's another bit which is interesting here. So in the article, Moran and Laudum talk about how there was a massive increase in union membership and a push within the Labour Party to move to the left during the fourth Labour government. And they take that to be infiltration by the Russians trying to change the union movement. What other rationale might there have been to make people decide to join their unions during the fourth Labour government, do you think, Joshua? Well, all, all of those neoliberal reforms that they brought in that seemed to uh, disadvantage the working class. And neoliberal reforms which don't seem particularly congruent with a international communist conspiracy to change the direction of a social democratic country. No, no. Yes, if the if the Russians were trying to direct the the um, the path of New Zealand politics, they certainly missed a trick when when it came to the economic side of things. Yes, now for non New Zealand listeners or people who aren't particularly au fait with nineteen eighties political eco- economics, New Zealand was one of the first countries to engage in widespread neoliberal economic reforms. So we were the ones who basically privatized a whole bunch of public. Public assets. We were one of the first Western nations to do this in kind of a large scale on the assumption that everyone else was going to do it. And then it turned out that most other countries engaged in much more moderate neoliberal reforms, which is why we did things like selling off rail- the railway network for a mere measly one New Zealand dollar and the like. So the kind of economic changes that occurred in 1984, 1985 did not lead to more communism. They led to the country becoming increasingly more capitalistic and actually a lot more like America than, say, the Soviet Union. So mm. that that little bit of history is kind of missing from the story. You would think from the way the authors talk about it, the Soviets were controlling every aspect of our policy due to the infiltration by the SUP into the union movement. And yet the anti-nuclear policy is kind of a really, really minor thing compared to the neoliberal reforms the 1984 government actually engaged in. Mm. Okay, so prong number three then. How about uh, John Vanderveen? Blunten the edges of that one as well. Well, there's not much information available about John Vanderveen. He hasn't. He has, like many dead people, an obit, but there's really no independent collaboration of anything he says. All we've got is the private correspondence that he and the authors engaged in. And actually, by the time the article is published, around about 2007, Van de Ven is already dead. So we've simply got the words of a dead man who claims that he was engaged in a kind of double agent infiltration of the union movement. But there's no collaboration which allows us to go, oh, actually, we, we can say that's true. We've simply got the author saying, well, we were told this by John and that we trust John. So ipso facto, it must be true. 
Hmm. Well, I mean, I have to say, I'm I I, I am still unconvinced by this tale. Um, I do not believe that the New Zealand's anti-nuclear policy of the 80s was um, thrust upon us by the devious Russians. Yeah, and the the Michael Bassett prong, a little bit like the Oleg prong, is basically just reports of, well, you know, these things occurred, and Oleg says the KGB liked it. Bassett simply says, you know, some of the policy initiatives that the Labour Party engaged in in 1984, 1985 came from the left wing of the party, which I strongly disapprove of. Ipso facto, they must have been up to no good, but there's no actual evidence put forward by Bassett alleging that there was a Soviet conspiracy behind it. It's simply some of the things we did were a bit left wing and, you know, that was bad. Mm. So, sorry, how recent was this Moran Loudon article? 2007, I believe. Right. So nothing Yes, else March has... 2007. So nothing has come out since that would uh, in any way uh, bolster their case? Not at all. Oh, well. Well, it's a nice story. So maybe. Well, no, no, no. Final final thing. Okay. We should talk about the authors. Yes. Yes, perhaps we should. Loudon's a name that's come up a a bit, at least. Yes. So Bernard Moran, there's actually not much information about him available. He's just a freelance journalist. There's precious little information about him online. But Loudon, Loudon's kind of a big name in a kind of weird way. So Trevor Loudon is a former president of the ACT Party. Mm, New Zealand's most right-wing mainstream political party. Yes, uh, it used to be called the Association of Consumers and Taxpayers, which is where you get the word ACT from. I believe it's no longer an acronym. It's 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 just a word you always spell in capital letters now. And he's also famous for being a member of ZAP, or ZAP, which was an offshoot of Scientology, which was heavily reliant on the literature produced by the John Birch Society. Mm. What, what did ZAP stand for? Was that, was that Zenith Applied that? Philosophy. Right. I always, I always think it's something to do with Zionists and it was an anti-Semitic thing, but I don't know... That was its well. I mean, the jo- I mean, the Birches are anti-Semitic, mm. but no, Zap itself was uh, was a weird combination of Scientological mysticism and jo- John Birch Society style conservatism. Right. But let me let me read you now from Wikipedia and their summary of the political activities of Trevor Loudon. According to Wikipedia. Loudon has been involved in politics in Christchurch for many years, such as the Campaign for a Soviet-Free New Zealand, a group which published dossiers of people involved in the anti-nuclear movement, declaring them to be communists and connecting the dots between them and their supposed Soviet masters. Loudon established the Campaign for a Soviet-Free New Zealand in June 1986 to expose Soviet Marxist subversion in New Zealand. Loudon argued that the New Zealand government should cease all diplomatic and trading relations with the Soviet Union on the grounds that it was a hostile totalitarian dictatorship seeking world dominance. The group advocated a ban on the importing of Soviet Nova and Lada cars on the grounds that they had been built through slave labour. Other activities carried out by the group included staging protests, 
collecting information on the Labour Party and left-wing groups, and circulating pamphlets in Christchurch during the 1987 New Zealand general elections, which attacked the fourth Labour government and local Christchurch-based members of Parliament, Mike Moore and Geoffrey Palmer. Loudon claimed that New Zealand's Communist parties, particularly the Socialist Unity Party and their front organisations, had infiltrated the Labour Party, trade union movement, National Council of Churches and left-wing groups like the Council of Organisations for Relief Services Overseas and the anti-apartheid Halt All Races Tours. Right, so this, um, this, th- this particular story was very much on brand for him then, I guess you could say. Yes, now... In subsequent years, Loudon has been trying to point out that communists have taken over the USA. For many years, he was running a website down in Christchurch exposing commies in the Senate. He now lives in the US where he goes around giving talks about communist infiltration of the USA. And last I heard, he was giving a talk in Boise, as friend of the show Martin Orr pointed out to me in private correspondence. Oh, well, I mean, good for him, I guess, but... I mean, he's managed to make a a lifestyle out of Mm. believing in communist infiltration of all Western nations. Good for him, I guess. Doesn't quite sound like the right phrase to use. No, it doesn't um, really, no. Yeah, no. Oh well, um, have we reached the end? Well, I'm I'm getting the impression you're still not convinced. I'm, I'm I have to say I'm not convinced by this story. It was an interesting story, but not a convincing story. Yeah, yeah. I actually time when it came out, I actually penned a critique of this on my blog back when people had blogs and updated blogs. In part because even though this was published over in Australia, the National Business Review, which is kind of the leading right-wing business magazine slash newspaper we had in the country, I don't think the NBR exists anymore. They were praising the virtues of this particular of this particular article, and I was going, "But there's there's no argument here. It's all insinuation." There's no evidence whatsoever. It's just the authors have a bee in their bonnet about Russia and they're just connecting dots that don't even seem to exist. Mm. Yep, that's, that's, that's how it sounds to me, quite frankly. Uh, so in that case, I believe we can call to, to a close another episode of What the Conspiracy. So next time it'll be my turn. I have an idea. I haven't, I haven't done much reading about it. So it might turn out to be a terrible idea, but we won't know for another three weeks or so. Well, um, precisely. Mm. But before we um, before we we call this to a close completely, we do of course have to talk about this week's bonus episode, which we are going to record in just a moment, and which our beloved patrons will then get to listen to. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about Salvatore Mundi. Um, you you bonus patrons got a an episode or two devoted to it before we eventually made a, um, a public episode about the case because it's, it's an interesting thing to talk about uh, and people are talking about it again. We're also going to bring up the case and the headlines at the moment of Gabby Petito, the woman uh, who went missing in Yellowstone Park and whose body was just found this week and whose fiancé, I think he is, uh, partner at any rate, is currently uh, being sought 
in relation to her death. We're not going to talk this about is the, the person who left Yellowstone. Sorry, this is the case of the the person who left Yellowstone without his partner and just refused to answer any questions about where she had gone. Basically, yes, yes. No, it's an odd case. We're not going to talk exactly about the case, but there has been an interesting, an interesting little side point that's been brought up by it. Mm. A kind of legal point, which is mm. probably not real, but at the same time, actually quite fascinating. Interesting. Well, I mean, it's yeah. Yes, no, actually, I might as well, just, just to, to raise interest, we're going to talk about the Yellowstone Park Zone of Death. Probably should have called for one of those in advance, yes. So if you'd like to learn about the Yellowstone Park Zone of Death and, and also hear a bit more about Salvatore Mundi and you're a patron, well, good news, uh, because you don't need to do a single thing. It'll be piped into your ear holes automatically by some sort of some sort of syringe, as far as as is my understanding. Um, if you'd like to, be... I actually believe it's a, I believe I believe it's a robot. A robot. Okay. Well, if if, if you want the um the podcast podcast bestowing ear robots for yourselves, and you're not a patron, you can become one by the the, the simple expedient of going to patreon.com and searching for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. And if you don't, if 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 after all of that, you still don't actually want. Uh, automated ear robots forcing information into your oral canals uh, and have no desire to be a patron. Well, I mean, that's fine. It takes it takes all kinds. We were, what, what, what would the world be like if we were all the same, you know? Um, so I think I think I'm done. Are you are you spent? I am. I am so spent that. Then you can't even think of a a metaphor for how spent you are. Yeah, precisely. Fair enough. Time to call things to a close, uh, which I will do in the traditional manner by saying goodbye. And I will do it in the traditional Soviet way of Vladivostok, my good friends. And there we go. You've been listening to a podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, hosted by Josh Addison and M. Dentith. If you'd like to help support us, please find details of our pledge drive at either Patreon or Podbean. If you'd like to get in contact with us, email us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com.